this was really devastating to our national sense of cybersecurity. We don't yet know what the Russian actors took. We don't yet know what their ultimate purpose was. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The solar winds breach hit thousands of public and private organizations and individuals. Many of the details and consequences of the breach remain unknown. A recent revelation that Chinese hackers may have piggybacked onto the initial Russian incursion shows just how prevalent state-sponsored cyber espionage has become. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with Robert Kanaki, a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations who also served as director for cybersecurity policy at the National Security Council. They talk about new details of the breach, lessons learned, and processes that must change to ensure digital information is protected. Let's listen. Rob, uh, first of all, a great privilege and honor to be able to sit down with you and uh, talk about uh, the issue, the broad issue of cybersecurity in the most recent uh, solar winds breach. And uh, again, I um, want to tell you it was a uh, absolutely great article that you wrote for Foreign Affairs, and we'll link it to this podcast. Uh, maybe I can uh, begin uh, by first uh, setting the table and asking you sort of broadly how we should be thinking about the threat to national security and national economy that now exists within our sort of digital world and just sort of how you are generally looking at um, the issues of um, cyber threats, cybersecurity, um, the actors who are behind it, and uh, not only what has occurred and is occurring, but what is likely to occur. Sure. So let me begin with solar winds and and how I've kind of reacted to that. And my basic take is, is that this was really devastating to our national sense of cybersecurity. We don't yet know uh, what the Russian actors took. We don't yet know what their ultimate purpose was. What we do know is that they were able to exploit our software supply chain. They were able to do that to infect as many as 18,000 SolarWind customers. And they were able to actively exploit 400 of those customers. That included federal agencies, large commercial enterprises, and other security toolmakers. And that they were able to do this for at least seven months and possibly far longer. And in the end, the only way we know about this, the only way we caught them uh, was because FireEye had a smart person working uh, in their security operations center who investigated a false alarm uh, on multi-factor authentication that had been tripped, I believe, inadvertently. By the attacker, right? And so, what does that mean, right? It means that this group, the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Unit, was able to evade the best detection tools we've got out there from companies like CrowdStrike and FireEye uh, and others. They were able to maintain their access without tripping over. Uh, 
honeypots or other deception technologies deployed by these companies. They were able to act in such a way that they didn't stand out to tools that are looking for anomalous activity. And then I think almost worst of all, they were able to, for this entire period, hide what they were doing from the U.S. intelligence community, who found out about this activity from FireEye, not from their signals collection, not from what they are doing on an offensive basis on foreign networks. And so all in all, the idea that we've been getting better at cybersecurity really was kind of knocked apart by this incident. That's a great overview. And um, as you noted um, in your article, sort of a wake-up call. And um, also what you've just highlighted is it was almost, I don't want to call it accidental or fortuitous or serendipitous uh, that we even found out about it. And but for the work of one person, not because of technology, not because of the overall security net that we have around our digital um, infrastructure, uh, this would have been, this would have continued. And so what is, what is the message, Rob, that comes out of this moment? What, what's the, what are the lessons that we need to take away? Well, I mean, I think there, there are a couple. One, uh, let me start you know, with the U.S. government, right? There's been a major focus uh, on using offense for defensive purposes. Uh, what the Department of Defense calls defend forward or persistent engagement. The idea that we can use offensive cyber operations to protect our networks. Uh, the idea that we can go off of U.S. networks and fight the adversary uh, on their networks, that we could get into and disrupt uh, these operations uh, at their source rather than relying on security controls uh, at destination. Now, it's a good theory and I've been supportive of it, uh, but the reality is you can't fight what you can't see. And we weren't able to in this seven months when in a period under which Russian cyber activity was under deep scrutiny. I mean, let's not forget that the, the, the alleged actor here, the SVR, also was involved uh, in reconnaissance operations, at least uh, in 2016 against the DNC. Uh, and so while we're watching the Russians for engaging in election interference, and in many ways, and I, I think justifiably patting ourselves on the back for protecting the election, uh, we apparently had no idea uh, what at least one very large part of Russians, uh, Russia's uh, foreign intelligence collection operation was doing, which was this whole campaign. I mean, there's there's a number, and I, I don't believe it. I, I think it, it's been exaggerated, but allegedly the, the U.S. intelligence community has concluded that up to a thousand individuals were involved on the Russian side in, in carrying out this campaign, in targeting all these companies, in developing the malware, and conducting reconnaissance. It's just a massive operation, and so. The fact that the U.S. intelligence community missed it and therefore that Cyber Command wasn't able to disrupt it uh, is really problematic. Uh, so I, I think you know, there is something that needs to be looked at. And a question needs to be made. Is it a matter of resources, right? Or is this just too hard? Are these targets going to be too hard for our offensive operations to compromise them? That's the first thing. Now, 
The second piece, I've hit the tool makers you know, pretty hard here. Right? I don't blame FireEye uh, for failing to detect this, that any of their detection engines uh, failed to trip this, right? Um, adversaries are going to test their tools uh, against detection engines and detection tools. Uh, that's what any smart offensive operator would do. We see that clearly in this case where they looked for every single uh, EDR agent, every single endpoint agent uh, that was common to the market and seen whether they uh, were detecting their activity. Um, and if they were, uh, the, the agent, the, uh, the Russian agent um, was doing something pretty smart, right? He was saying, okay, if we can disable this detection engine, uh, we'll do that. And then uh, we'll go on our merry way. And if we can't, we'll just shut down, right? If we're going to be detected and, this, and the detection by a, an EDR agent is going to bring this whole thing down on us, um, we'll just stop the activity. And so that's what they've written into the code, right? And so it's going to be very hard for some tool makers to detect these things. The, the piece that I've, I've really hit them on um, is the fact that at least one tool maker, uh, Palo Alto Networks, um, is claiming that they in fact did detect this activity uh, and that they stopped it and no harm came to them and that they detected the activity using one of their tools and they generated indicators of compromise uh, from what they detected, and they shared those with their customer to protect their customers. And that's great, and that's good if you're a Palo Alto customer. The problem is um, they didn't share that with anybody else. They didn't share that with the Department of Homeland Security, who could have shared it with the intelligence community. They didn't share it with the Cyber Threat Alliance, an organization they stood up for the express purpose of sharing this kind of information. Uh, and so nobody else knew. And so we ended up in a situation when it took FireEye uh, losing um, very valuable pieces of their IP uh, to figure this out uh, and then to inform the rest of the community about it. And so, you know, that's a key piece here. We've got to figure out how we get these security tool makers who are competitors to be working together in a cooperative manner. So we've got kind of a national detection grid uh, and failure of one tool at one company doesn't mean that we end up in a situation like this uh, where this activity can go on for so long. And then I think the last and final piece, and, and this is kind of the hardest to unpack, is really the supply chain one. How do you know if uh, you can trust your suppliers of software, particularly of crucial software, uh, like solar winds, I, I think there's there's a couple pieces here that um, are are troubling. You know, one is I, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that solar winds really didn't take security very seriously. Uh, they didn't have a CISO, they didn't invest in it, even though they started to try and uh, take over the commercial space uh, in this area and were advertising as a security tool and stood up an MSSP. They didn't invest a lot in their own security. And so, you know, they were a very easy target, it would appear, easier than competitors in the field for carrying out this kind of activity. Uh, well, how do you know that and how do you factor that in? I, I think security ratings are potentially a piece of this. Companies uh, that I advise, like Security Scorecard, BitSight, competitors, um, they are able to rate companies on their security, at least on an outward level. Um, that's a piece of this. The, the harder piece of this is really how you evaluate the security of the software that you've purchased. It's one thing to re rate the website security of the company. It's another thing to be able to really know, was this software built security securely? 
Does it have vulnerabilities uh, in it? Is it more likely to have more vulnerabilities than competitor software? Uh, is it using good security hygiene, good security practices in the build? These are things that are very difficult uh, to rate and very difficult to get those evaluations out publicly. In fact, you know, every software license ever written will, will protect against that. And so that's, I think, the last piece that, that we need to tackle here is to figure out how we can gain more trust in our software supply chain. So you've, hi you've highlighted a number of vulnerabilities. One is we haven't yet reached the inflection point uh, of having truly a cooperative net here amongst the um, private sector um, and also what we hear and you probably hear this as well constantly from the private sector is that the government doesn't share enough with the private sector to sort of know what they know. Um, have you encountered that particular issue and how do you begin to break that uh, uh, this this stalemate? So, I mean, I think on the issue of, of government knowledge, there's two pieces to it. You know, one, the federal government has been pretty clear that it did not have intelligence on this threat, that it wasn't sitting on it and didn't share it. And in fact, you know, since I was uh, in government in uh, 2014, right, we put in place policy that's still in place today that we're, when the federal government knows that you've been a victim or the target uh, of a sophisticated campaign like this, um, they will inform you. Uh, and the FBI has made thousands of such notices to companies uh, in the last few years. So I, I think in this case, it wasn't that the government didn't have information and didn't share it. It was that, that the government did not have that information. Now, there, there's a couple nuances here. You know, one is is what people in the intelligence community will refer to as tipping and queuing, right? Um, there's there's a break uh, between what is detected in the private sector in the United States and what our foreign intelligence entities detect abroad, right? There, the the NSA is not being informed by what's hitting commercial companies. Uh, they're not being told, okay, we saw this, uh, we were pinged by this IP address, uh, we're calling out to this domain name, uh, we saw this malware, we collected it, we're passing it to you for evaluation to figure out whether you can do any targeting on that basis to help inform us. The, the processes for this, they're not just broken, the links are broken, they, they don't exist. And, and so we don't have the ability to work in that coordinated manner between the private sector uh, and the public sector. And, and I think that that's something that, that we're going to have uh, to try and fix. Let me um, probe a little bit on the issues of attribution. And um, maybe you can explain for the audience sort of how attribution is assigned uh, what level of certainty is required. And uh, as reports were surfacing as early as yesterday, there are some indication that possibly um, Chinese actors uh, were involved as well, or maybe in lieu of uh, prior attribution to uh, Russian actors. Can we gain, you know, sort of your perspective, you know, first in terms of how attribution is assigned 
and how that research continues. And then, you know, in terms of your best perspective of who were the actors behind uh, the solar winds breach? So, I mean, attribution has been something that uh, was almost impossible in the early days of the Internet and has improved really over over the last decade. I, I think the sort of best earliest uh, public attribution at a detailed level, at least in my mind, uh, was when Mandiant uh, came out. I think this was in 2012 or 13. Um, and outed uh, one of the Chinese APT groups. Uh, I believe APT-1 is what they labeled it. And they labeled out their evidence for how they tracked the activity back from their from their customers uh, back to a, a building in China. Uh, and, you know, they said, look, you know, we can attribute it down to this building. And we can say, you know, there's two possibilities. This is a building of a Chinese intelligence unit. Uh, and so it's either the Chinese intelligence uh, that's carrying out these attacks possible, or they've got a real problem and some other foreign intelligence agency has compromised their networks and is using their infrastructure without them knowing it uh, to carry out this this intelligence campaign against our customers, right? And so and that's kind of the best early example of how this works. And if you follow that up, um, the U.S. government then came out, uh, I think, a, a couple couple months later uh, with the indictment of the five Chinese PLA hackers. And, and they took that attribution a, a step further. Uh, they took it down uh, to the individuals, right? They weren't saying it's this unit. They weren't saying it's this hacker handle. They were saying it's uh, this unit, this hacker handle, uh, this person with this name uh, and this picture. Uh, and indicted them uh, in, in a court uh, outside Pittsburgh. Um, that level of attribution really required, I think in that case, the, the evidence suggests from what's publicly known, um, it required the cooperation of the U.S. intelligence community uh, actively targeting uh, those actors. Uh, then you can look at other cases uh, like the, the hacking of the election in 2016, where I, I think it's safe to say, based on what's publicly known, uh, that there was some human intelligence involved, that, that the, US, uh, the U.S. intelligence community was able uh, to get actors who were going to confirm specifics of uh, Vladimir Putin's involvement uh, in that incident. And so that's the sort of full range from the what we can infer, what we can understand uh, based on the attacks we're seeing and publicly available information to active signals intelligence collection all the way up to human intelligence to make an attribution. Now, yeah, in this case, how those attributions come out, um, they can really differ in, in the level of certainty and the level of quality and, and in how they're delivered. Um, in this case, uh, we've had companies that have made the attribution uh, back to the SVR or groups that are known to be uh, associated with the SVR uh, based on uh, what what they're able to see, what information they're able to collect as victims or as uh, the vendors uh, for victims. Um, as this information got passed into the U.S. government, um, I think we got what I what I, I would understand to be uh, some in some cases purposeful, in some cases non-purposeful leaks of attribution confirming. Uh, that it was, in fact, the Russians, right? So 
this is a, an unusual situation in some ways because we're still trying to grapple with what does attribution mean in terms of what do we have to do about it, right? Um, if we attribute this to the Russians and we say this is the Russians as um, we now have, right, that, that invites a need to respond. And the difficulty here for the team that's trying, I think, to put together that response is trying to state to the Russians and to the world what it is the Russians did wrong, when in this case, it looks, at least on the surface, like this was standard intelligence collection, the kind of intelligence operation that is widely accepted under international norms. And so, you know, in, in some cases, attribution, like we've seen, um, may box governments in in a way that they ultimately will find uncomfortable. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. With in-house expertise and a global network of experts, Rain provides more than 400 corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions with risk intelligence and actionable insights from the collective wisdom of our global network. We provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks in five key areas, including geopolitical risk, security and threat intelligence, healthcare, cybersecurity, and of course, legal, regulatory, and compliance. Find out more at rainnetwork.com. So Rob, you bring up, let's call it the elephant in the room. And I want to sort of also get into uh, simplifying this issue a little bit. Towards the end of your comments, you just referenced a fundamental point that I, I think has escaped the broader marketplace, that there is a, uh, I'll put the term in quotes, there is a game that goes on between nation states in terms of what falls within acceptable norms for purposes of intelligence gathering, espionage, you know, and possible uh, disinformation campaigns, also disruption of operations, economic platforms, etc. And what you seem to be suggesting is that possibly one of the reasons we're at this point of increasing cyber warfare is that uh, there are nation states that are uh, sort of doing what they've always done in terms of objectives. And so there's no real recourse. And the metaphor I've sometimes used is the big boys are Boeing and you have a lot of companies and a lot of consumers and a lot of um, what I'll refer to as um, enterprises and institutions, including government agencies themselves, that are the bowling pins in this in this uh, sort of game that the where the gods are are bowling. And am I sort of understanding that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a, it's an interesting analogy. I, I think it's one that a lot of companies like Microsoft um, and others would would agree with, right? You know, we're just sort of victims here. We're commercial enterprises. We're businesses, and um, in some cases, our customers. In some cases, the countries that uh, we develop software for, we develop software in, um, are targeting us, right? And and this this feels you know deeply unfair, right? At, at the same time, um, I think there's, you know, a, a, a first very basic question that, that you have to answer um, when trying to engage in, in the question of what's right and, and what's wrong, right? And, 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 and it's really you know, down to the level of, do you want to collect intelligence in the 21st century, right? 
And you could decide, you know, I'm sure there are some countries out there that, you know, say, hey, it's just, it's not worth it. It doesn't meet our geopolitical interests. We don't have the resources. Uh, we're not going to do spying. Uh, most countries spy, though, and certainly most uh, world powers spy, all world powers spy. And so, you know, if, if you're going to engage in espionage uh, in the 21st century, that's going to take place primarily over, over computers. Uh, and so, you know, given that, the next question is, you know, do we need a, a sort of different set of rules? I think the U.S. intelligence community has been, for the most part, uh, appropriately constrained, uh, appropriately constrained itself. Uh, there's an awful lot of lawyers uh, mucking up an awful lot of operations, making everybody's life difficult uh, to try and understand uh, what's legal and what's not legal to protect U.S. citizen data, uh, to uh, abide by what we think are reasonable norms, uh, to protect the interests of uh, the ecosystem more broadly. Uh, I think that's a, a, a active effort uh, that's always underway. But what's different in, in some ways uh, about espionage in the 21st century is is just the scale that it allows, right? The the potential to get into 18,000 companies or even just the 400 companies that were actively exploited, right? This is a scale of intelligence and this is a scale of uh, collection that, that really is unprecedented, right? If you, if you take up the the list of documents that Robert Hansen, the, the FBI mole, took out, I think, over about a decade. You know, I, I calculated this once, right? Uh, he smuggled them out into uh, dead drops in parks around the D.C. areas. In total, right, this would have been you know, a couple of megabytes worth of data. Right. And we're seeing intelligence collection now that, that's measured in petabytes. And so the scale of the collection uh, has changed. The other thing that's changed is the risk. Right. Um, OK, we're going to destroy a lot of computers. And I think this is a worthy point to raise. But we're going to destroy a lot of computers as the result of this. It's going to cost us a lot. Um, but those computers, at least at this point, they don't have feelings. They don't have rights. Um, they don't even know that they're at risk, right? Well, you know, Robert Hansen is still in Supermax and he will never get out, right? So spying in the old world came with a lot of risks that introduced natural limitations uh, to both officers and agents that we just don't have in the digital world. And so right now we're kind of in a free-for-all where the, the response from a lot of the U.S. intelligence community has, has been to this and other past actions, you know, not bad on them, bad on us, right? Our responsibility was to protect our secrets from them, their responsibility, their job that they go in every day to do is to get those secrets out of our networks. They didn't do anything wrong. We did something wrong. If we could have done to them what they did to us, we would have done that. And I think right now that represents the norm. The question is, do we need to in some ways change that norm? So apropos that, um, a reasonable question might follow, Rob, which is, are we engaged in the same activities with respect to other nation states that they are engaged in with us? I mean, I, I think it's, it's safe to say just based on the comments that we've seen coming out of the intelligence community that right, this is not a behavior that, that necessarily uh, is beyond the pale uh, that we haven't articulated 
a norm in which we say supply chain attacks like this are unacceptable uh, for the following reasons. And you could articulate those reasons and you could decide to say we wouldn't do it for these reasons. Um, but we haven't done that. Um, people have suggested you know, various rubrics and under which you could create those norms, right? You could say, well, the, the problem with this attack, even if it was only espionage, uh, is that ultimately it will be so costly to the companies that were targeted because they're going to have to spend so much money rebuilding uh, their networks that it effectively was a destructive attack. Uh, I mean, that's in some ways a reasonable position, right? The, the recommendation coming out of NSA and CSET, the Department of Homeland Security, is that if you were compromised in this, you cannot trust your active directory. You need to rebuild it from the ground up. Um, that's going to be a very costly exercise. So even if the Russians didn't destroy any technology, they caused its destruction. And so do we want to say, right, the scale of this kind of activity is is such that, you know, it is going to ultimately end up having a destructive outcome and, and therefore shouldn't be accepted? I don't know. I, I think that's probably a bridge too far when, when you balance all the interests we have uh, from a national security perspective uh, in collecting intelligence against our adversary. I, I think probably on balance. Uh, national security leaders will conclude, you know, we wouldn't want to constrain ourselves to carry out this kind of activity, uh, even if it means that we will be subject to it. So the, you, you, you open a very, at least in my mind, a very intriguing door. Okay. And uh, since I spent 10 years in the government, then 20 years at Goldman Sachs, and obviously now at Rain, uh, I tend to think about, and went to law school, Rob, I tend to think about sort of the allocation of costs. And uh, you're suggesting that we may be at a, a point where we do need to f adopt new norms and, and potentially agree to those norms between nation states, but we may not be at that point. And indeed, for, on a cost-benefit basis, at least if you're the U.S. government, the benefits of maintaining the status quo, um, and maybe that's the perspective of other nations such as China and uh, Russia, uh, the governmental benefits outweigh the, we'll call it the societal or industry costs. But in the meantime, uh, the companies that are bearing the costs, of course, are private sector um, companies, but I'd also argue some government agencies, the breach of the, uh, of the personnel records of, um, was significant even the ability to access through Equifax, you know, the credit histories of government employees, uh, you know, some better. But the costs seem to be uh, born now principally within the private sector. And that means uh, investors, it's at the cost of how capital gets deployed, potentially at the cost of uh, innovation, uh, et cetera. And as you point out, it's it the recovery here is time consuming, it's costly, obviously it's distracting, and it often will mean a diversion from other you know, other opportunities that might be not only beneficial to companies, but beneficials beneficial more broadly to our national economy and job creation and things like that. And the question I have here is that are we allocating 
the costs of cybersecurity and both what I'll refer to as the types of things that companies have to spend money on to prevent a problem, no less to remediate it. Uh, are we allocating it properly in light of who's behind it and what the ultimate purposes are? And I'll give you sort of, a, a, we'll call it a dramatic uh, point, at least I think it is. You take the company Equifax, which um, had a incredibly damaging breach and, and the loss of information that wasn't just theirs to own, but, you know, quite frankly, belonged to individual consumers. And uh, what resulted were all sorts of regulatory enforcement actions and civil settlements and class actions and obviously a um, huge amount of reputational damage. There were congressional hearings. There were job resignations, There, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There was a completely convulsive event, not just for Equifax, but for the marketplace. And the tab was very significant from a monetary, financial, reputational, operational standpoint. And then I think it was a, a number of years later, whether it was three years later, whatever that, uh, I believe the Justice Department brought the indictments of three or four senior Chinese military officials as the architects and sponsors behind a sophisticated state-sponsored event. And so I you know, I think a reasonable takeaway here is if companies are being attacked by sophisticated actors who are able to use some of the most sophisticated technology, and these are state-sponsored events, what has to change so we don't continue this cycle? Because this is not, you know, this, this can't be on a long-term basis particularly beneficial. And is it fair for corporations to be assuming such a huge part of the costs, burdens, reputational risk, operational disruption costs uh, that they currently are and, and seem to be increasingly, increasingly absorbing? It's, it's one of the tougher questions in the space. And I, I come down decidedly on one side of it. Uh, I, I think based on you know, our prior conversation so far, it should be pretty clear right, that the U.S. government does not have a, a silver bullet here. Right? If it did, it would be using that silver bullet uh, at least to protect its own agencies. Uh, if it did, uh, if NSA had the solution, uh, it would have been brought out uh, by now, uh, particularly as uh, these incidents get more and more politicized and uh, government is expected to do more. I think if it if it could, it would. And so, you know, ultimately, the, the best solution I think we're going to have are com- companies continuing to take responsibility for their own security and having the incentives, both positive and negative, for them to do that, to invest adequately, uh, to make appropriate decisions uh, on their software and hardware stacks, uh, to make appropriate trade-offs between security and usability. And then I think the big missing piece to cooperate uh, with the federal government uh, and with other companies uh, in order to detect and rapidly respond uh, and stop these attacks. I, I think that's that's really the only only solution here. I, I think the idea of you know, government somehow taking on more responsibility, nobody's come up with a construct 
for how that uh, would work. Um, and then I think uh, on the economic question of, well, should the companies pay for it or should the government pay for it, right? Well, ultimately, uh, it's the companies and it's their consumers uh, that fill the government's coffers. And so I, I'm not sure that a, an indirect method of government funding uh, through tax revenue the security of private companies makes sense. I think we need to get a model in which companies are encouraged to invest adequately uh, in their own security uh, is where we is where we need to end up and and where we're going to end up and and where we're starting to end up and the last point I'll say on Equifax um, I, I took almost you know an opposite view on this uh, you know my view is if you're going to hold that kind of data uh, you should be putting up a bond for every single record uh, that you're holding uh, and that record should be payable to the individual. Uh, whose records uh, you hold in the event that you lose it, right? And that would create market incentives for companies like Equifax to say, we can we can never uh, lose this data. And if we are at risk of losing this data, then we better not collect this data. Uh, that's, I think, the, the appropriate way to deal uh, with the personal records issue, because you're right, right? It, it's not their data. Uh, and yet they weren't incentivized to protect it and uh, they weren't ultimately penalized in any meaningful way uh, for losing it. And so I think we do need a new rubric in this area. You know, although if you talk to the where you stand on that issue, Rob, depends on where you sit. Equifax feels, I think, very, very much taken to the woodshed uh, and uh, penalized. But that, that's a separate point than, uh, than the one that you're appropriately making. And... Um, of course, you know, a rebuttal, which I have heard, you know, is, is even the most sophisticated U.S. government agencies have not been able to protect themselves and have lost critical confidential data about their employees. Uh, so what chance do we have? And increasingly, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the, you know, the the question of how fast do you have to be to outrun a bear and, and the answer being just faster than the other guy. What has certainly emerged in the marketplace is, you know, at least an effort that where people feel uh, um, built up something. So, I, you know, I will not be the path of least resistance to these uh, attackers. And so maybe there is some safety and security in that uh, paradigm. But obviously that doesn't protect people overall. And, you know, uh, the defense being only as strong as the weakest link, I think, is really one of the points that you made about solar winds and sort of how the penetration occurred and how it was able to survive and live anonymously um, as long as it did. So uh, just in uh, the remaining time that we have, I'd, I'd like to maybe, and, and you've emphasized a few things, possibly the need to think about and adopt new norms between in the activity between countries certainly the responsibility that each company has to think through um, what they hold and how they hold it and the security around that, the importance of cooperation uh, within the private sector and between the private and public sector. And again, as you said, no silver bullets. Uh, But I'd actually like to maybe let's go back a a number of decades and get into a more analog world um, where, as you said, you know, what has changed here is the ability to launch these, we'll call it 
data gathering. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up Hansen, and I could talk about moles that were within the CIA and the damage they did. And you could even talk about Snowden and 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 you know his activities. But the point you're making is that the ability to work remotely, anonymously, I'll argue very cheaply with low barriers of entry, um, high, high reward, low risk activity, and uh, of course the ability to scale is what makes these uh, moments you know, different. Uh, and if you think about what's been occurring, I like, I like to you know, in these conversations, reference that the underlying crimes, to think about this as a technology problem in search of a technology solution may be missing the broader point, and the broader point may be about new norms. But if you look at the crimes that are being committed, whether it's theft, fraud, extortion, blackmail, espionage, sabotage, disinformation, all those, we'll call them, all those crimes actually go back to the days of the Bible. Um, what, you know, ha- hasn't happened, as you said, is the ability to launch these things and it, with such scale and, I'll call it, effectiveness through our new portals. Is it time, and you seem to be alluding to this a little bit, you know, in terms of Equifax and the information they gather, is it time to rethink what it is we actually hold on our digital platforms. And I'm also inferring from your early comments in this podcast that to date we don't always know why people are interested in some of this information or what their ultimate goal is. But it does feel like there's this ultimate, I was going to say, Hoover vacuum, let's call it a Dyson vacuum effort, just to gather as much as they can, wherever they can, and then maybe figure out the business model, I put that term in quotes, uh, behind that. But is it time for us to start really rethinking what information is held on the digital platforms to think about this in analog terms about the crimes that are being committed, why they're being committed, whether it's organized crime, hacktivists, state sponsors. Again, these types of actors go back to the days of the Bible. And, you know, begin to rethink sort of what we're holding and how we're holding it in light of the fact that with solar winds, it's yet, as you said, a humbling moment where we thought we had things reasonably under control until we didn't. Yeah. I mean, I I think that for a lot of companies, um, we need to create the incentives for them to rethink why they're holding data and why they're collecting data and we need to rethink, I think, on uh, some fundamental levels, uh, the economics of data markets uh, and who owns data and what they get to do with it. Um, I, I'm encouraged to see, I, I think, the start of a movement away uh, from advertising as the only way uh, that online content and online services can be created uh, and delivered. I, I, I got really excited a couple months ago uh, when Google told me that my uh, Gmail account uh, was reaching the upper limits and, and that I would have to pay money if I, uh, if I wanted to have more storage. And, and that was a really exciting moment, right? Because it was Google actually saying, hey, you know, we'll charge you $3 a month to give you a whole bunch of storage. 
It's like, great, right? This is very different uh, than you tapping all my information that you collect on me to target ads at me, right? Can I, can well, I pay well, you more but, money but, not but to Rob, do that? they didn't say we're going to charge you in lieu of that model. They're saying we're going to charge you on top of that model. On top of that, right? But I mean, for Google, this was a, you know, this was, I think, on the consumer level, a huge move, right? Um, you know, I, I'm waiting for the day when, when Facebook says Facebook will not always be free, right? I mean, this is Mark Zuckerberg's line. Facebook, you know, will always be free. Well, it's not free, right? It's the, it's the old adage, right? Uh, if something's free online to you, uh, you're not the consumer, you're, you're the product, right? They're selling your data, they're harvesting your data, and they're targeting ads at you with that data, even if they're not reselling that data to a data broker, right? They're using that to manipulate you into spending money you don't want to spend. And so, you know, I think if we can find other business models, uh, like Google is now doing with storage, like I hope they may do it with Gmail, and then others may follow, uh, you know, where, where you can get an incredible service, that can be offered at scale very cheaply, but not free. I, I think we're all going to be better off than trying to harvest every detail uh, of your life on and offline in order to monetize it uh, to support platforms. I, I think that's a dangerous space. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'd like to see more restrictions on the collection of data. I'd like to see um, smarter models for the collection of that data. Uh, I've been making a, a big push uh, on identity uh, where I, I think that there is the potential for uh, identity providers uh, to come in and, and resolve the need to collect a lot of this information, right? You don't need uh, my birth date to know I'm over the age of 21. Uh, you just need somebody to validate that I'm over the age of 21. My exact birth date should not matter uh, for almost anything I'm doing online. And so I, I think there's a big potential here for new markets to be developed uh, if we're willing to put in place some restrictions on, on the way we're doing business today. Okay, that's a, a great point. And I, just um, last few minutes in closing, I want to tease out another idea from your comments, which is from a risk-benefit analysis as we continue to launch new products and the axiom, if something is, if a product is free, you're the product. The question of whether as we launch new products, new services, etc., into the marketplace, what appears to also happen is that the long-term or back-end potential costs, and let's, let's just focus on data and privacy and how data is protected and what can be breached, that not enough analysis is going into what products can be launched into the markets and how and when, what can be sold to the public. Obviously, a lot of very personal health and medical information is now being stored online and, you know, a day barely goes by when you don't hear about a breach that potentially uh, impacts um, the health and medical community. And there was a time, and that's why I want to go back to the um, uh, analog days, where uh, as more products, more electronic products were coming onto market, there were certain fire safety issues. There were issues about uh, whether plugging a device into your uh, electrical outlets might you know, cause a fire or, in the old days, fuses to blow out 
or something could overheat while you were sleeping at night and things like that. And um, a, a testing service developed, which was, I guess, the, you know, uh, this goes back to the DNA of NIST standards around various cyber products and, and, and security protocols called Underwriters Laboratory, which was actually certifying the safety of products and uh, that they, you know, and, and to provide confidence for consumers. And I heard you earlier um, in our broadcast uh, referencing sort of a certification process where whether it's around the security protocols that a company might be putting in place or maybe it's the safety and security of specific products coming to market, the privacy safeguards. And um, obviously, uh, there have been some announcements by Apple and now Facebook uh, concerning what I'll refer to as consumer data protection. And I'd love to get your thoughts because it feels like it is overdue uh, for consumers to be able to have an underwriter's lab type of certification concerning either the products they're buying, the services they're signing up for, the what I'll refer to as um, agreements that they enter into with various providers, whether it's healthcare, whether it's their academic institutions, where they do have a certification of safety and security. And I'd love just in the closing here to get your thoughts on that and as well as how something like that might be established and take on, you know, the role that that little UL seal has taken on with virtually every piece of electronics that we purchase. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting space. I remember it may have been five or more years ago, Underwriters Laboratory said they were going to make a big a big push uh, into the space. Um, and I, I honestly don't know what came of it, but I think it's safe to say it hasn't had um, the impact in that time uh, that they might have hoped and that we might have hoped since we're having this conversation right now. Um, there's any number of um, certifications that companies can put on on their website to say they're meeting uh, various standards. I mean, I, I think the real issue is are are those standards meaningful, um, and what level of protection uh, do they really provide, and how much assurance uh, should you have uh, if a company you're doing business with? Um, has one of them. Um, I've been a, a big supporter of, of work of the cyber uh, uh, cyber ITL, uh, which is a, a lab that was set up uh, for rating the software security of products. Um, I think that that's you know, a very important metric, and they've done some work uh, with consumer uh, consumer reports uh, to include those ratings. Um, in in their evaluation. So I think it's coming. But o- overall, uh, how we measure security and whether those measurements are meaningful is still a really developing field. Um, the last point I'll say here is I, I was really heartened to see uh, in uh, mid-January announcement from Bob Kolaski uh, at uh, CISA at DHS 
uh, that their National Risk Management Center is going to make a big push on cybermetrics uh, that they want uh, to help mature that field and mature that capability. And, and so I'm hoping that kind of you know, government step in uh, along with existing work in NIST uh, can help us really to get to a point where we can measure security in a, a meaningful and, and trusted way. Rob, I can't thank you enough for um, not only spending time with us, uh, but continuing to speak out and 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 to write um, in a very very what I'll refer to as persuasive and uh, understandable way uh, for publications such as Foreign Affairs, and very much consider it you know continuing public service. Uh, so thanks in advance, and obviously we're going to link that article uh, to the uh, to this podcast um, and I want to say a conversation to continue and uh, these insights have been very very valuable and clearly there needs to be um, a bit of a pause and a rethink about what we're doing and continuing to do and whether there are a few things here that can make a very very significant difference uh, would it be fair to sort of conclude as follows, Rob, that uh, the current trend is not our friend? I, I think that is a very concise way to put it, David. Okay. Rob, thanks again for uh, truly your public service and your collaborative efforts. Uh, and for the audience, uh, we, we try to find the honest brokers and the people who can actually speak objectively and uh, factually and on an evidence-based uh, fashion. And Rob is certainly one of the leaders in this space. So thanks again, Rob. Thank you. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Robert Kanaki is the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and an expert in cybersecurity. Please visit rainnetwork.com to learn more about the implications of this attack for businesses and individuals and what steps organizations can take in the days and weeks ahead. Go to rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.